Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. On Tuesday, Donald Trump gave the keynote address at the Holocaust Memorial Museum's annual Days of Remembrance ceremony. That is why we are here today, to remember and to bear witness, to make sure that humanity never, ever forgets the Nazis massacre. I'm not surprised that the guy who forgot to include the Jews in his original Holocaust Remembrance Day statement a few months ago also doesn't know how to pronounce Nazi. I think it's more surprising that he doesn't. Like, I would think Donald Trump would, like, at the Remembrance Day ceremony, start, like, speaking in fluent German and, like, reading the Nazi Pledge of Honor. I'm skeptical of his uh, ability to speak fluently, or at least proficiently in any I'm language. less skeptical about his ability to speak fluently and more confident in his rampant a- anti-Semitism. So this week is our second week in a row looking at military sexual assault. Last week, we spoke with civil rights attorney Gloria Allred and Protect Our Defenders Executive Director Miranda Peterson about the Marines United nude photo scandal. And this week, we're going to focus more on policy, and then we'll be joined later on in the episode by Representative Jackie Spear of California's 14th District. Representative Spear recently introduced the Service Member Intimate Privacy Protection Act, which is meant to stop the proliferation of non-consensual pornography in the military. We've got a problem here, just like, you know, Fox News had a problem. And it's important that we roll up our sleeves and fix it. But first, our weekend weenies. Our first weenie is Robert Fisher, who's a New Hampshire state representative. Robert Fisher is a 31-year-old who has a rich extracurricular life. And it's so rich that according to the Daily Beast, he's responsible for starting one of the biggest internet kind of subcultures, the Red Pill, the internet's destination for men's rights activists and pickup artist tips. It's a disgusting online place where all bad can be traced from. Um, You should read the article on the Daily Beast, but essentially the reporter Bonnie Baccaris traced Fisher's online aliases to one called PK underscore atheist. Um, that Fisher reportedly controls, which started a blog in 2012, quote, dedicated to the woes of dating in American culture. And I think this just confirms a suspicion that I've had for my entire life, which is if you look deep enough into a man's online history, every one of them is going to have founded Red Pill. (laughs) It also confirms the suspicions that I have about online internet trolls. You always assume that they're just some pathetic, you know, guy who lives in his mother's basement. But hey, they they could actually be a politician. And I think it's probably an equal split. (laughs) Politician. It's a Venn diagram of politicians and guys who live at home in their mom's basement. I mean, and also politicians who live at home. Our next weenie is, I think this is the first time our weenie is a historical event or like a... Like a, a holiday. A holiday. Yeah. This holiday is called Confederate Memorial Day. Congrats to the holiday for being named a weenie. (laughs) Congrats. I think we can all see where this one's going. So April in Mississippi and a couple of other states, April has been deemed Confederate History Month. And the idea, at least on its face, is to to, consider the South's history with the Confederacy. But actually what it really is is a celebration of the Confederacy and and the Civil War and the people who died in the South for it. 
without any acknowledgement of slavery, I think there is some validity to dedicating a month to understanding the history of slavery in the Civil War, but that's not what's happening here. Um, Per the AP, the holiday quote commemorates those who died during the Civil War while fighting for Southern states that tried to secede from the U.S. And here's a reminder that they were trying to secede from the U.S. so that they could create the Southern slaveholding confederacy. (laughs) So this is a holiday that celebrates slavery. The people who who fought and died in pursuit of being allowed to own slaves. Yes, and this was celebrated this week in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, even though Georgia has changed it to just call it a bland state holiday. Republicans are so good at taking a holiday that has very kind of nasty, offensive, painful roots and rebranding it to make it cheery and acceptable. Confederate Memorial Day is not that rebrand. Oh, and then also on Monday, with snipers on guard, New Orleans took down the first of four Confederate monuments. So this is like— this is like a good this is a good thing, but it's also really fucked up because the monument that they took down has been there for decades and it was it's called the Liberty Place Monument and it paid homage to a white supremacist rebellion in 1874 in which white people tried to overthrow the reconstructionist government. And our next weenie of the week is the tiniest chode himself, Donald Trump Jr. Donald J. Trump Jr who just continues to be a general schmuck day-to-day. He tweets all the time, truly hateful tweets. But this week on Earth Day, he went hunting in Montana for prairie dogs, (laughs) which I just think is so rude. (laughs) I mean, I know he loves to hunt, which is also disgusting, but just take one day off. Of all days. This is like the Republic—this is like Confederate Memorial Day— He thinks he would rebrand Earth Day to be like, let's appreciate Earth by hunting all of its creatures. I could see that. Like a backwards. Like Hunter Appreciation Day. Or it used to be Hunter Appreciation Day, and then the Republicans rebrand it to be Earth Day. To be Earth Day. Yeah. And now on to our next segment, which I didn't even ask Prachi about. I just thought of it, and then I added it, literally, at this moment. Prachi, where is Paul Ryan hiding? Is he hiding under the bed somewhere? He's hiding behind the postcard that he wants us to be able to do our taxes on. Imagine for a moment if you could file your taxes on the form the size of a postcard. Wouldn't that be something? This is one of the things we're working on right now. He could still be hiding under his bed, though, with the postcard. I mean, maybe after he filmed that very silly spot. One thing that is amusing to me is that politicians who are so serious and largely so boring and uncomfortable have to film these like they have to do acting on camera and deliver monologues they sh- they just shouldn't to our dick of the week, Marines United and the U.S. military, but we're going, same as last week, but we're going different. So this is how, last week we talked about the pervasive problem of sexual assault in the military, Um, and this week we want to talk more about 
what the military has done to try and combat it. And spoiler alert, it's not that much. It's really not. This Um, is going to be a really short section. Yeah, Yeah, when I was researching my section and I was trying to focus on policy, I ended up really just coming up with lots of incidences that have happened that haven't led to substantive policy changes. Uh, Yeah, that's what it is. It's really depressing. So in America, women have been working in the military in some capacity ever since the Revolutionary War. They were working as cooks, laundresses, and then later on as nurses and spies. Congress finally officially gave women a place in the military in 1948 with the Women's Armed Services Integration Act. But it wasn't until 1976 that women were finally admitted into places like the Naval Academy or West Point, so the service academies. And then in the 1990s, Congress began allowing women to serve on air and sea combat missions. So what was it like for women in the military in those beginning years? Um, On the podcast, Yours Unapologetically, Lillian Fluke, who was one of the first women to graduate from West Point, she was in the first graduating class in 1980, she talks about how women were treated when she was in the military. We were sexually harassed every single Mm -hmm. day, every single minute of every single day in subtle and not subtle ways. I mean, you you have to say good morning, sir, and salute when you pass someone, and we would hear it was a good morning till you bitches got here. And people would beat off in our underwear drawer and leave little presents for us and, and, you know, throw shaving cream filled cream filled condoms into our room and, and, you know, and and destroy our stuff, you know, and vandalize our things and swear at us and fondle us and nemesis. It was everything you can you can imagine. So the treatment of women was a problem in the military ever since women were in the military, at least based on what Lillian Fluke is saying, I think that is a safe assumption to make. But the first major widely publicized incident of sexual assault in the military happened in, 19, in 1992. A Navy lieutenant named Paula Coughlin revealed that she'd been assaulted at the Tailhook Symposium, which was a weekend conference in Las Vegas where there were Army and, service, Army and Navy service members um, the year before. And then an investigation revealed that 83 women and seven men were assaulted by Navy and Marine service members, um, and that led to zero prosecutions. There was a series of major sexual assault scandals in the following years. In 1996, 12 officers at Maryland's Aberdeen base were accused of sexually assaulting their female trainees. You know, but despite this public outrage and public discussion about military sexual assault, change was really slow. It wasn't until 2005 that Congress required the military to create the Sexual Assault Prevention Response Office, which and their purpose was to figure out how to respond to reports of sexual assault and eventually, like, hopefully end sexual assault in the military. And the program focused on training military personnel to, uh, on sexual assault prevention, and it said that, like, 95% of personnel were now trained, but it wasn't very effective at curbing sexual assault. So by 2013, the rate of sexual assault was actually the same as it was back in 2006. So finally, in 2011, a lawyer named Susan Burke filed a class action lawsuit against the Department of Defense on behalf of 28 men and women who had been sexually assaulted in the military. This was a major landmark case that at the time was thought to that it was going to change how military sexual assault was handled. But the Department of Defense argued that 
per a 1950 Supreme Court decision called the Ferris Doctrine, that the government is not responsible for injuries sustained during military service. And the judge actually granted the Department of Defense's request to dismiss the case. And so that really set the tone for future legal trials on sexual assault. And it really highlights why it's so hard for victims to get justice and for anything to really change. Then in 2012, there was a huge, huge, huge um, scandal, the biggest in Air Force history when over 30 Air Force training instructors were revealed to have allegedly sexually assaulted more than 60 female students. Um, And it's also really noteworthy that not a single victim came forward. It was actually revealed by another trainee who was not assaulted. And the next year, the Pentagon released a report showing that military sexual assaults had risen in recent years. And that same week that they released this report, an Air Force officer was charged with groping a woman in a parking lot in Arlington. That officer, Jeffrey Krasinski, was actually in charge of the sexual assault response task unit at that branch. And I think that is really emblematic of the problem of sexual assault in the military and the challenges that women and men face when coming forward. Yeah, because nobody is not somebody's boss or like nobody is not in charge of something that is super important in the investigation. And that's what people are trying to change. So in 2012 at Sundance, and then it was released in 2013, there is a documentary called The Invisible War, which is about the rape epidemic within the military. It focused on one of the survivors from that Susan Burke class action lawsuit that Prachi mentioned, and it publicized a couple of very jarring statistics. First of all, that a woman soldier in in a combat zone is more likely to be raped by a fellow soldier than killed by enemy fire, and that 20% of active duty women soldiers are sexually assaulted while serving. Everything came to a complete change the, the day that I was raped. I got there in February. Um, by April, I was drugged and raped for the first time. I had like a cold or pneumonia-like symptoms, and so they sent me to get checked out. And while I was waiting to be examined, he came in and he helped himself. He said he was going to the bathroom, and he came into my room, and, and that's when he raped me. The entire time, I was screaming and yelling for help and for him to stop. Nobody came to the door, nobody came to help me, came to my rescue or anything. They made it very, very clear that if I said anything, they were going to kill me. Um, You know, and then of course I didn't have anyone to go talk to because the people that were perpetrating me were the police. It was my first time ever and it well, I've had a tough time convincing myself that I'm still a virgin. If this is happening to me, you know, I can only, I'm surely I'm not the only one, in which I found out later going through the claims process that I wasn't. So this movie is credited with helping a lot more women speak up about their experiences, women and men. Um, and with sparking policy changes on a number of levels, or if it didn't spark policy changes, it at least sparked people to try and make policy changes. So several days after seeing it, reportedly, Secretary of Defense at the time, Leon Panetta, announced a change in policy in how sexual assault cases would be handled. He said, now instead of being handled by unit commanders, they would be handled by more senior offices like colonels, so it wouldn't be 
like your direct boss who maybe was a perpetrator who maybe feels some kind of kinship with the person who committed the assault. Um, But of that policy, the director of the documentary, Kirby Dick, said that it was, quote, an important first step, but it's still in the chain of command. There's still conflict of interest. The colonel may, may know still the perpetrator or may know the commander who knows the perpetrator. It's a direct connection or the victim either way, and it should be taken out of the chain of command. And a lot of people were trying to do that. So also in part thanks to the film, but also in part thanks to all of the reports that Prachi mentioned, and there were plenty of other reports that I saw in the news, although I can't, we can't list them all because that would be boring and depressing and repetitive and seven hours long. So there were a lot of women lawmakers who got involved in this fight, including Representative Speer and Nikki Tsongas, and then Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Claire McCaskill and Barbara Boxer all got involved in this and introduced legislation. For example, Senator Gillibrand introduced legislation to remove prosecutorial authority from the military in sexual assault cases and place the place the authority instead in an independent body called the Military Justice Improvement Act, which would take the burden of prosecuting away from the person who might have a conflict of interest. And this almost passed, but obviously didn't. Um, And meanwhile, Representative Speer and Representative Patrick Meehan were introducing similar legislation in the House. All this stuff has failed. We can talk about why that is with Representative Speer and also in a second. Also in May 2013, Representative Speer complained about a Facebook page apparently put up by the Marines called Effin Wook, which depicted women being tied up, beaten, and shot. And... In response to that, the Marines told Speer that it was being investigated, but no, nobody ever said if anybody was disciplined. And this kind of – and then there are a couple other instances like this where Congress people or government officials bring attention to some sort of sexual assault case and the Marines or the military are like, yeah, we're aware of this. We're doing something. And then nothing has to come from it. And the, the military doesn't have to disclose their findings. So proposals like these from government officials are obviously unpopular within the military because it kind of takes away all of the commander's authority to intervene in legal cases. There also was a thing where commanders were able to overturn verdicts. And so there's just no reason that that would ever be popular among anybody because even if like a military commander, military representative claims to be interested in stopping the sexual assault epidemic, that comes at a cost. They would, I mean, right, Prachi, they would much rather say, like, yeah, we have it under control. You need to trust us. We're really trying. But also, let me maintain my power. Right. Well, they've been saying, officials have repeatedly said there's a, quote, zero tolerance policy for, there's zero tolerance for sexual assault in the military. And they're never going to say it's not. Right. Yet somehow they're There's way more than a zero tolerance policy. There's like a 90% tolerance policy. Now joining us, we're so excited to have Congresswoman Jackie Speer from California here on the show with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. 
So in response to the Marines United scandal, which you've spoken out about quite a bit, you introduced the Service Members Intimate Privacy Protection Act. Can you tell us a little bit more about the bill? So this bill would specifically and explicitly forbid the sharing of intimate images without the consent of the subjects uh, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There is language right now that uh, prevents the taking of a picture without consent, but there's no provision that prohibits the distribution without consent. So you can understand under circumstances where a couple, one's deployed, uh, that in this day and age, the intimate partner takes a picture of themselves uh, to to send off to them that um, shows um, a nude photo of themselves and expects that that would be held in privacy. But the relationship breaks up and then all of a sudden it's on a Marines United uh, website with 30,000 viewers and that would be a violation under the Uniform Code of Military Justice if we get this language into the law. So last week, the U.S. Navy regulations were updated to outlaw the, quote, non-consensual distribution or broadcasting of an intimate image. How does that work with your bill, and does that mean that the problem's solved? No, the problem's not solved because uh, that's a regulation. And for it to have the full force of law, it would have to be included in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, coupled with the fact that the regulation is poorly drafted, I must say, Uh, and has an intent requirement. So you have to show intent to realize profit or intent to humiliate and harass or a reckless disregard of whether the depicted person is humiliated, harmed, or harassed. So you could arguably find a set of circumstances where the poster doesn't know the person, so how could they have a reckless disregard for whether or not they are humiliated if they don't even know the person. So the intense standard has been roundly discredited by lawyers and intent clauses that have been put in place uh, to deal with revenge porn in civil society have, have also been seen as, as very flawed. So the intent language is, is really unacceptable. So we've heard from representatives from the Marines about this, saying that they're shocked that this could have happened. But in 2013, you told the Marine Corps that there were websites like these and it's still been allowed to continue. So why do you think there's been no recourse and why has it persisted for so long? Well, you know, it is ironic that back in, in 2013, I stood on the House floor and talked about demeaning websites of uh, Marines posting of of other Marines that were uh, truly scandalous uh, in in so many ways. I mean, they were misogynistic, they uh, were promoting rape, and I took copies, screenshots of these websites and included them in a letter to the then Commandant General Amos, who responded by saying, yes, we find this very disturbing as well, um, and we see it as an IT issue. And I think what we've learned is this is not an IT issue. This is not something that needs to be focused on in the social media policy. I mean, this goes to fundamentals in the military. How do you maintain good order and discipline if you have uh, service members undercutting each other? It 
impacts the cohesion of a particular group and, um, and the readiness of an organization uh, to be able to go out and fight wars. I mean, it's all about having each other's back. And yet, if you are demeaning your colleague and peer, you can see how that undermines all of those principles. So I think the only thing that's different this time is that it's gotten a lot of coverage in the media, in the mainstream media, and it has caused the Marines to take the issue more seriously. And unlike sexual assault, which has been a perennial problem and one with just immense ramifications, the, the, the rape issue is, from their perspective sometimes, he said, she said, this is very tangible. It's something you can view with your own eyes. Uh, you can see where whoever is running these websites shows a picture of the Marine in uniform and then unclothed, um, identifies them by name and where their base is. So it is, it's violative of so many articles within the Uniform Code of Military Justice that I think um, the Marines recognized that they had a huge problem on their hands and needed to take steps. Um, I think the, the Navy regulations that are also, I guess, being incorporated by the Marines just don't go far enough. So there's been my bill that's been introduced. There's also been a bill by Representative uh, Martha McSally that I am the principal co-author of that uh, addresses the issue um, by uh, focusing in on another article within the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, so one way or the other, I, I'm pretty convinced that we're going to see an amendment to the UCMJ in the National Defense Authorization Act this year. Do you have any feeling of how these instances of online harassment in, um, kind of contribute and interact with the larger problem of sexual assault and harassment within the military? Well, we do know that sexual harassment is oftentimes you know, the first step to sexual assault. So it's, it's a, indeed a, a very serious problem. I was at the Air Force Academy just last week, and a survey that was taken at the Air Force Academy showed that 57% of the cadets there have uh, reported that they've been sexually harassed. Now, how, how can we tolerate this in the creme de la creme? These are hand-selected individuals with great leadership ability, great intellect, and half of them are feeling sexually harassed in the academy. So we've got a problem here, just like you know Fox News had a problem, and it's important that we roll up our sleeves and fix it. So last week, we talked to civil rights attorney Gloria Allred, who's representing two of the survivors in the Marines United case, um, and she was upset that Congress has not yet heard from the victims. They've heard from Commandant Neller, but not the victims. Are there any plans for this to happen? And can you tell us what the latest is with the uh, investigation and hearings in Congress? Well, I, I share Gloria Arwood's disappointment that the victims were not um, asked to testify. And I specifically requested that they be allowed to testify. And, you know, the rationale for not was that these are ongoing investigations and they did not want to um, somehow frustrate the investigations. I find that a, a real stretch because on the Senate side, certainly General Neller testified in an open hearing. On the House side, it was a closed hearing. Nonetheless, uh, the Democratic Women's Working Group, um, joined by Republicans, I might add, 
um, actually did have a hearing and the uh, two persons, two victim survivors, one retired and one active duty, came and testified and, and their, their statements were, were quite powerful. Um, one reminded me that uh, when she was in boot camp, her drill sergeant said to her and the other female Marine recruits at the time, trainees, that they were either sluts, lesbians, or bitches. And I thought to myself, and this is the Marines. Um, and, and this somehow is acceptable. Um, so as you can imagine, there, were, there was a lot of gasps in the hearing room when she made that statement. And it underscores how important it is for us to get this right and to fix it. So one thing that contributes to women being afraid to come forward in the military in cases of sexual assault and harassment like this is that for sexual assault cases, the commanders are often involved, which seems like a pretty major problem. Are we any closer to changing how that system works? So the, the chain of command has always been a problem. That's why in the legislation that I've introduced that deals with sexual assault, my whole focus was taking these cases out of the chain of command so that there wouldn't be uh, the conflict because in so many cases, it is the chain of command that um, is sexually assaulting and or is friends of the assaulter. Um, but we have been unsuccessful in getting that legislation passed because you know there is no way that the military wants to somehow have their power uh, diminished. And the members of Congress have been willing to continue to support the military in their position, in part, I think, because they don't want to seem to be unpatriotic. But I would hasten to say, if you're really patriotic, you want to make sure that all members of the military are protected. And when you have military members who are more likely to be injured by their fellow service member than they are by the enemy, we've got a huge problem. So I think that as we move forward, there will be a period of time, of grace period, so to speak. But if they continue to have problems with the numbers of sexual assaults, sexual harassment, retaliation, at some point, I think they, being the military, will recognize that they should separate these cases out. Um, and once it becomes their idea, then we will be successful in fixing this problem. Okay, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you. Now, the best part of our show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we tell you how we're handling the dicks on a day-to-day -day basis. Pachi, how are you handling them? I've just sort of been taking it easy, taking a breather, trying to focus on some non-politics stuff. I've been working on pieces about Tribeca, which has been a nice change for my brain. And then everything else is just, I'm just kind of continuing. About the Tribeca Film Festival. That's, about a movie in it. That is what I meant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no one, one thing that's not helping me is on The Real Housewives of New York, they have been like it was filmed in November in October and November so all of the episodes are leading up to the election and the plot lines are like them being stressed out about the election and having arguments about it and Real Housewives should be the ultimate escape 
from everything because it's like all these very rich women arguing about nothing. But now it's not relaxing anymore. It's like verging on unwatchable because they keep being obsessed with Hillary and like terrified of Donald Trump. And there's one character on the show who clearly loves Donald Trump. And it's just unwatchable. I feel very angry at them. I'm so sorry for for the ruination of your sh- of your favorite show. It's not my favorite show, but I it, think does it is. suck. It's really <laughs> upsetting. So I've like I've tried to watch that to, you know, take my mind off things, but it what, put my mind right back onto them. <laughs> that what else could could you watch? Would you ever watch uh Keeping Up with the Kardashians instead? Um I just I maybe it's just not one it's not on my rotation. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of shows. It's just I was really looking forward to getting back with my Roni girls and like <laughs> seeing what they've been up to over the summer. I have to admit I know nothing about the Real Housewives. I've never seen an episode, and I've never know, learned more about them than I have some in my three months at Jezebel. Well, I know so topic. much. It's a big topic here. <laughs> so much for listening to Big Time Dicks and thank you so so much to Congresswoman Spear please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find it you can also find us on Panoply NPR One and wherever you get your podcasts this show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Trees Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio and we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Yeah.